Well, good morning, ZPC. It's good to be here this morning. Everyone love that autumnal day yesterday. What a beautiful day. Am I right? It was perfect. Uh, I got out there with Adelie right around 1 o'clock for her soccer game, and it started pouring, and I was so happy um, that they ended up canceling it. So, um, poor Adelie, but uh, there's always next season. So, uh, but it is good to be here with you this morning. We are, of course, continuing in our look at the parables. And today, uh, perhaps, I don't know, it's hard to say. We could do a poll, I suppose, as to what the most famous of all the parables are. A prodigal son would certainly be up there. But certainly, um, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan has got to be pretty high on the list. And uh, both uh, those who are Christians and not, almost all of them, uh, at least uh, know the, the phrase of a Good Samaritan or being a Good Samaritan. And so, Let's take a look at that today. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke says, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning as a people who know this story. It's a story that challenges, a story that encourages, a story that if we hear it perhaps should scare us just a bit. So we pray, Lord, that in this time that you would open up our ears and our hearts to what you would say to us, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. 
So as a parent, you learn a lot um, about um, kids the longer that you have them, I think. And one of the things that I have learned, I've only been a parent for six years or so, is that you literally have to teach children, it seems like, everything. Right? You think some things are just common sense, but they actually aren't. Right? I mean, how many times, if you have a child, or if you are, were a child, which all of you were, did you have to hear or did you have to say, you know, use your brain? Right? I mean, use your brain. Come on, you're smart. You can do this. Just think through what you're doing. Why would you do that? Why didn't you just think it through? Right? I feel like we are doing that all the time. And either internally or externally, we are saying that. And one of the things that we have to teach our children, of course, is how to listen. Children, it seems, are just simply not that great of listeners, right? I mean, time and time again, we have to tell our children, you know, just listen. Did you listen? Did you hear what I said, right? Maybe you... Maybe you guys have good kids. Our kids, we have to keep telling them that, right? But, of course, the reality is that I know that when I was a child, I had to be repeatedly told that as well, right? I wasn't a very good listener. In fact, my mother loves to tell the story about how I was a few houses down and I was playing with friends outside and she kept yelling for me and yelling for me. And finally, many, many minutes after she had initially began to yell, I I went home and she said, did you not hear me call your name? And I said, well, I heard something, but it sounded like like, and so I just kept on playing, right? You have to teach our kids how to listen, right? But the truth is that we as adults, if we're honest, are also not always really good listeners, are we? Exactly. Thank you. That wasn't a plant, but it should have been. So, you know, I can, I, there, there have been many times with Megan uh, when we have been in a conversation, and if I feel like I know where the conversation is going, I tune out. You guys know that, right? You wives are like, so true, right? And so, and, and I'm not trying to be mean, but we just, you know, we're trying to save time, right? I mean, if we know where it's going, we should start thinking about something else, right? And so, so this happens frequently, like when she wants me to go to the grocery store for something, you know, go to the grocery, I want you to get this and this, and, and I don't ever know where anything is in the grocery, so I, you know, it never makes sense to me, so I usually, I'm like, well, can you tell me where that is, and she starts to tell me, and I think, oh, yeah, okay, I got it, yeah, yeah, right, and then I get to the grocery store, right, and I have no idea where I am or why I am there, right, and so I always have to call her, in fact, from now on, whenever I leave to go to the grocery store, I always say, make sure you have your phone on, because I will be calling you at some point, right? And then she doesn't because she wasn't listening to me, right? I mean, this is what happens. So we're always having to try to listen, to try to learn, right? And I think sometimes this is the case when it comes to the story of the Great Samaritan or the Good Samaritan. This story is so well known that probably by the time I started just reading at least the story part of it, you all probably were thinking about other things because we feel like, and in a sense we do, we know exactly where the story is going. We've heard it. We know what's going to happen. Jerry's going to tell us to love our enemies. That's great. Let's think about other things that we need to do throughout the rest of the day. How many of you were, no, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, this is just what happens, right? 
So I think, so, so today then, let's just take a look at the story again, and let's see, maybe there will be nothing new under the sun, but let's at least go into it by saying we are going to do our best to not try and figure out where Jerry is going before he actually gets there so that we will really hear it, okay? Brent? All right, good, all right. So the story t- starts out, of course, as you all know, with a lawyer. A lawyer who wants to make sure that he has all of his I's dotted and all of his T's crossed, right? And so he wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, acting like a good attorney or a lawyer himself, he answers the question with another question, right? What did the scripture say? And so all of a sudden then the, the lawyer clearly knows his scripture. So he begins to say, you know, we're supposed to love God and, and love our neighbor. And he says, well, that's great. That's exactly right. But the lawyer is not satisfied just yet. He wants to parse this out a little bit more, right? And so he, he tests him and he says, okay, that's great. Now, who is my neighbor? Can you define neighbor for me, right? What's he trying to do probably? The same thing that most of us try to do. What is the least that I can do in order to be neighbor, right? Frederick Beekner has this great little quote. He says, this is, he goes, this is probably the, the, the answer uh, that, that the lawyer was looking for. He wants Jesus to say this, a neighbor... Here and after referred to as a party of the first part is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence unless there is another person of Jewish descent here and after to be referred to as a party of the second part living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself in which case the party of the second part is to be construed as neighbor of the party of the first part and one is oneself relieved of all responsibility to any sort or kind whatsoever." But that wasn't the answer that Jesus gave him. As is so often the case, when Jesus is asked a question, especially as we are seeing during this season, Jesus responds not with the answer that people would want, or even perhaps in the way that they would want it, but he answers with a story. The story, again, is one that you all know well. A man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's beaten, he's robbed. He's left for dead. A priest comes down. He sees the man off to the side, and he just continues on. The Levite, kind of a helper of priests and whatnot, he comes down also, and he sees the man, and he just kind of keeps going on down to Jericho. Then a Samaritan, of all people, right, the hated enemies of the Jews, he comes down. He sees this man, probably Jewish. He takes care of him. He bandages him. He puts him up on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He gives him money to make sure that he he is taken care of. It's a simple but powerful story. So how do we hear the story? Well, one of the things I oftentimes think that we mishear, perhaps, and conveniently enough, is that we, we, we dismiss very easily the uh, priest and the Levite as being kind of selfish and self centered, you know? Who is it that just keeps walking by somebody when they clearly are in need? If I, though, were to ask you all a question, uh, how many times have you driven by somebody who was off to the shoulder of the road who clearly had some kind of need? I I wonder how many of you would raise your hands. There we go. Yeah, what? Yeah, Brent, thank you. Will you wake him up, please, Eileen? Thank you. 
So the question, of course, is you might say, well, you know, they're not really in physical pain. You know, they're probably, it's just a flat tire. I'm sure somebody's on the way. I see them on their cell phone. It's, it should be no problem, right? These are the things we say, right? And what, 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 I mean, what happens? Of course, if you were to stop off on the shoulder, we start thinking about what might happen. All of us have heard of, of, of tales of people who have stopped off at the shoulder and then they've been hit and they've been hurt or, or worse, right? And so we start thinking, well, you know what? I mean, it may not be very safe for us physically if we were to stop. There's no reason for two people to be in pain, we'll just, we'll just let that person stay there. Or perhaps we also think, well, you know, we've heard stories, and this is true, there are stories of people who have been faking it. They're not really in trouble. There's not really wrong. They just pop the hood, and then some unsuspecting good Samaritan comes by, and bam, we've got them, right? And so we come up with all these great reasons in order to preserve our own physical safety, right? I get that. And they're good, clean rationalizations. And yet, oftentimes, when we hear the story, we don't let, we don't, we don't, give grace at all to the priest and to the Levite, do we? We just think, well, those people were just horrible, and we would never do something like that. But of course, we oftentimes do things that are fairly similar. But they're not just worried about physical safety, are they? Ken Bailey says they're also worried about their spiritual safety. So, Jerusalem is where people like the priests and the Levites would oftentimes go. You know this. They probably had just finished the two-week stint where they've been up working in the temple. They've been leading worship. They were, uh, they were purified ritually, right? They're in a good place. They did this two-service. It's kind of a, a two-week service. It's kind of a high that you're on. Many of the priests and Levites then, they lived down in Jericho. And so they would have they would have been going down to, to they've been going down to Jericho after this great two weeks, right? Everything was good. They were they, they were feeling good about who they were in God. And they reach and they see this person. They don't know he could be dead, he could not be dead, but if they get within four cubits of him, they are automatically they are defiled spiritually. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it would have been a big deal to them because then that means that they have to go up to the eastern gate where you have a big gong that is played and you are then shamed publicly for the fact that you have been defiled. And the other followers of God are looking at you and wondering what you did wrong. What did you, what sin did you commit? So what it's going on here, in some sense as well, is that you have this priest and this Levite who are in a predicament. Do they help this person, and in so doing, get the wrath of other followers of God who would shame them for their action? Or do they just keep on walking, acting as if perhaps they didn't see it, or assuming that whoever's going to come later will surely help this person out so that they can continue to be in good stead in their faith community and everything just goes on and nobody knows any better except for them. It's not an easy choice for the priest or for the Levite. And perhaps we too easily scoff at them rather than asking ourselves the same questions of how often we have simply left or stayed, kept a distance from people because of the fact that we are concerned that we might be physically harmed or even spiritually or theologically harmed if we are too close to them. But it seems to me that what we miss here is not just simply the priest and the Levite, it's also the impact of having a Samaritan in this story. Now, we know this by and large, but let me repeat 
this truth. Jesus could have chosen anyone. It is a made-up story. We talked about this when we talked about the lost coin and the lost sheep. Jesus could have come up with any story for the heroes, and yet he chose a shepherd and a woman, second-class citizens for the people of that time and that place. And here, Jesus chooses a Samaritan. Now, you know this by now, most of you. The Samaritans were hated. They were cursed in the synagogue. There were prayers where you would pray to God that there would be no Samaritans in eternity. One scholar has said they were a people of doubtful descent and inadequate theology. They were detested. Now, perhaps... Perhaps, perhaps Jesus could have used a Samaritan if the Samaritan was the one who was hurt and injured so that the story would be even if you really hate that person, you should love them. But there is no way that Jesus should even thought of using the Samaritan as the hero of this story. It is scandalous. And it's probably something that is almost impossible for us to understand. But Jesus does it, which tells us many things about Jesus. One of the things it tells us is that Jesus is unafraid to make people angry, to confuse them, to shift their paradigm, to discombobulate them, if you will. He has no fear of that, which tells us something, which is that, and I will set a low bar here, it should be at least once a year, if not more, that you should read Scripture, and when you are done, you should be angry about what you read. Or that it should confuse you, or discombobulate you, or shake up your paradigm of how you have always seen things. And if you are not made angry at some point during the year by Scripture, then you should probably ask yourself whether or not you are really hearing what the Scripture is saying, or if you are softening those sharp edges just to make it all a bit more palatable. But let me also suggest to you that it says something to us who preach which is that probably at least once a year, if not more, but what we are preaching, if it is actually based on Scripture, it should make you angry. It's interesting, of course, because the way that we preachers gauge, we've talked about this before, how good a sermon is, is by how many people go through and say something to us about how important the sermon was to them. But this story, it seems to me, is actually perhaps also saying the exact opposite, which is that you are not preaching very well if there are not people who, after the service, do not want to shake your hand and who are angry and who cannot wait to go home and to talk with their spouse or their friend about how ridiculous the sermon was that you had just heard and how angry it made you. Now that doesn't mean that every time I preach a sermon that makes you angry that it was based on scripture. There could be some other reason. There's lots of reasons I make people upset. But at least once a year you should be angry by something I say and if you are not then it means that I am softening the edges of scripture. 
And I should be called to the carpet for it. It should make us uneasy. It should cause us to question. It should make us angry. But another thing that happens when Jesus uses the Samaritan is that he forces us, again, not just to ask ourselves, do we love our enemies? But he forces us to ask this question. What does it mean when we have been loved by our enemies? Let me say that again. By using the Samaritan, not simply as the victim, but as the hero, Jesus is not just teaching us how we are to love our enemies. He is asking us, what difference would it make in your life if you had been loved by your enemy? In 2004, March as I recall, I lived in Bonn, Germany for a month. I had gone there uh, because I, uh, as maybe I've said before, I love the German language, right? There's just something about the eloquence of a guttural language that just does something. It's very romantic, right? And so I decided that I wanted to go there. I had been living in Scotland. I said, hey, I've got this time. I have lots of time. I don't have very much money, but let's go there. And so I decided to do it. So I went to this class. Again, it wasn't some kind of highfalutin. It wasn't the Goethe Institute, which would have cost way too much money. This was kind of a low-rent kind of thing, right? And so I had no idea what to expect. I was all alone, but I just thought, well, I don't know who's going to be there, but this is going to be great. Uh, And so I I went down. I flew down. I got in late Sunday night. I woke up Monday morning. Uh, My roommate... Uh, was, a, was a man from Tunisia, a Muslim man from Tunisia. And, and, and so I said, hello, his name was Samir. I said, this is great, okay. We walk into the class then, and there they are, one American who would be gone two days later, and me and 10 or 11 other Muslim men from Saudi Arabia, from Yemen, from Libya, from Palestine. Now let me remind you, This is about two and a half years after 9-11. It is at the exact same time that Al-Qaeda had bombed a train in Madrid. And here is very American Jerry. Now, I know what I should say to you, which is I should say to you, I had no cares in the world. It was perfect. But I have probably never felt more vulnerable in all of my life. Did I check my door to make sure it was locked before I went to bed two or three times? Absolutely. And when I was with them and they were speaking Arabic to one another, did I wonder what exactly they were talking about? And did I have a feeling they were probably talking about me and what they would love to do to me? Absolutely. And on those nights when we were walking and it was kind of dark and it was an isolated street and they were leading me someplace and I had no idea where we were going, did I sometimes think this could be my last night without question? And let me tell you what they did to me. They brought me and they welcomed me into their community. 
They showed me how to get tickets on the bus and the train. And they, they told me where to go for cheap groceries. When I was all alone and vulnerable and had nobody else and they had one another, they invited me to every time they would go out. Every time that evening or in the weekend, they would say, come on, Jerry, come to me a bit. And so something like that. And we would go together. And over those four weeks, these people who, with whom America has a very interesting relationship, to say the least, those people who were enemies slowly became friends. Or perhaps, to put it better, they slowly became neighbor. Why? Because they had decided to be neighbor to me. Now look, we still had some really awkward conversations. The guy from Yemen couldn't wait to have multiple wives, and so we had to talk through that a little bit. We had some difficult conversations about 9-11, about Islam. Sometimes they would even get a little bit heated, as much as you could get heated when you're both speaking second languages that you don't know all that well. And yet in the midst of that, my understanding of Muslim men from the Middle East and North Africa has been forever changed because in my moments of vulnerability, they loved me and cared for me and welcomed me. That doesn't mean that we figured everything out. That doesn't mean that we never had any disagreements. But what it does mean is that I began to see enemy as real people. And it seems to me that this is the other part that Jesus is teaching us about that we rarely actually talk about. It is why Jesus had the Samaritan not just be the victim, but actually be the hero. You see, if the Samaritan had been the victim, we don't have to change anything about how we understand anything. All we have to do is go, take care, bandage them, and have them move on their way. But when the enemy is the one who, when I was in a vulnerable position, they loved and cared for me, I simply, you simply cannot look at them the same. It changes everything. It is the process from when enemy becomes neighbor. And that is no small feat. The reality is this, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, all of us have to decide for ourselves whether or not we are willing to begin seeing enemy as neighbor. There are lots of people Lots of enemies that we have, they might be across the street, it might be across the office, it might be across the community, it might be across the country, or it might be across the world. All of us have enemies that we want to stay away from for physical reasons, for spiritual reasons, for theological reasons, for lots of different reasons. There are tons of good reasons to stay away and to keep safe. But what I have come to see in the story of the Good Samaritan is this. That it is only when we begin to see enemy as a real person that we can actually begin to love them. 
And it is only when we begin to love them that the enemy can become a neighbor. And it is only when we love someone as neighbor that we can begin to genuinely share with them the love and the grace of Jesus. And in so doing, it seems to me, in so loving this one who was enemy, but who is now neighbor, do we not reflect our own journeys? When we were vulnerable and lost, and one named Jesus came along and saw us and picked us up and carried us to safety and to hope. And might not Jesus then look to us after carrying us and after protecting us and loving us and say to us as a people, now go and do likewise. May it be so. Amen.